Good morning. I am Luke, if we haven't had a chance to meet. I'm one of the pastors here at Frontier and also am in the church planning residency here. Uh, we're going to be, for those, most of you know this, but we're looking to launch out Emmaus Church up in Ankeny uh, next, maybe springtime. We'll see, see what the Lord does, but we're looking at 2023 to launch out Emmaus Church here out of Frontier, which is exciting. And just as a quick update, we've uh, as a, been meeting as a core team weekly. And uh, it's been super encouraging. Uh, the, the team that has assembled, um, we may not look pretty on the outside, but when you come in on the inside, um, it's been great. I've just enjoyed sitting on my couch watching everybody laugh, enjoy one another, and build community together. And I feel like the time that we have spent so far, for me, it's been really life-giving and encouraging. And Anyway, continue to pray for us. We need your prayers. We need God's help to do the work that we feel called to do. So uh, continue to pray for us along that lines. If you have any questions or want to talk to me about that, I'd be happy to get coffee with you after church if you have any questions about it. But that being said, this morning we are in Romans chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there or uh, turn on your phone and flip there on your phone. And uh, we are continuing, I'm going to move this, otherwise I'm going to trip on it. We are continuing our trek through the book of Romans. Has it been a year? It's been over a year. We've been over a year in the book of Romans. We finally find ourselves in chapter 15. Folks, we only got one more chapter to go and we're going to be done. Though Cole... Unbe- secretly threw in an extra sermon and extended it by a week. That's, that's how he rolls. So, yeah, so. Um, anyway, but we're in Romans chapter 15. So go ahead and open up there. When I was a kid, I, I, well, I started to love fishing. I love fishing now. I, get, I do it whenever I have opportunity. And uh, when I was a kid, I was in, enthralled with it, but didn't have much money. And so I would go out living on the farm that we did and find worms at night. Collect worms, put them in a little jar or container and save them for the next time I would go fishing. And my grandfather one week was visiting our home and he said, Hey, Lukey, you know what you should do with those worms is put them in the icebox that will preserve them and, and help them be healthy and alive for the next time you go fishing. And being in middle school, I heard that and I thought, That sounds weird. Put them in the icebox. But I trusted my grandfather, and I went into the house, and I put him in the icebox. And the next day, I was going to go fishing, and I came down. And as I opened the freezer, which I thought was the icebox, I found a frozen clump of dead, iced worms. Which should have occurred to me, it tells you a little, how I'm a little bit slow in the head, but... But it didn't at that time. I heard icebox and I inferred the freezer, not knowing because I didn't grow up in the 40s that that's how people cooled their, what they called the refrigerators back in the day. My mother had a good laugh at my expense, laughing at me. And they still talk about that story today. But when I found this clump of frozen dead worms, I did what every reasonable person would do in that moment. I looked at them, I cut my losses, and I put them in the trash. And I went on to find new worms, new bait. The microwave, yeah. Yeah, just try to thaw them out. No. I put them in the trash. 
The reason I bring this up, is the reason I tell you that story is because I think that some of us, when we come into the church, we look at relationships, we look at the differences we have with one another in the church, just as there were differences among the Christians in the book of Romans, and we can look around and we can find no hope in our relationships the way I looked at those worms. We look around and we think, I need to cut my losses put this in the trash, and move along. All of us feel that at some point. We run into a difference that seems insurmountable, and we just don't see the hope of how this is going to be reconciled or how we're going to be able to overcome this. And like me as a middle school child looking at this dead, frozen lump of worms, we have no hope, and we want to put it in the trash and walk. Where there's a lack of hope, you find people on their way to the trash bin. And we do the same with people. Last week in the park, Cole and Carlos, a black man and a white man, stood before an equally diverse group of people, not just diverse in ethnicities and color, but diverse in opinions, ideas, what it should look like to live the Christian life, said, Welcome one another. That's what it says in verse 7, right before we get to our passage today. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. We were exhorted to welcome one another, to engage in love and service, to eat and feast together, and to do so so joyfully. But the question is, how does that actually happen? I mean, that's a really nice idea. It's cute. You can put it on a Hallmark card, and you can sell it. But how in the world does it actually happen when there's real significant differences between people in the church? When you look around and see Democrat Christians and Republican Christians, Christians who despise Trump and find him the manifestation of everything that's wrong morally, and those who are praying and hoping he's going to run again because he's their hope for the future of America. How do those two people sit in the same room and joyfully welcome one another? That seems like a clump of frozen dead worms. Do we cut our losses and run, or is there hope? I'll tell you this, what we're going to learn today in the text is that hope, is, hope in Jesus is the glue that holds a diverse church in unity. The greatness of diversity in the church would, apart from some great hope, relegate the work of the church to the trash bin. And we see it happen. People lose hope in it and they walk all the time. They lose hope. But today God wants to fill you with hope. That's what this text is, that's what, that's what Paul is aiming to do. He's told them to welcome one another and they think, man, this looks hopeless. And Paul is saying to them, no, there is hope to actually realize this vision of Christian unity amidst the diversity of God's people. So stand with me and we'll read verses 8 through 13 together. Starting in verse 8, the apostle Paul writes to us, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Again it said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even as he who 
arise, who arises to, the, to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is the word of God. You can be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we come to this text this morning, we come as a people who see a divided world. And we feel that division, it it upsets us, it frustrates us, and it threatens to undo our hope, and it threatens to undo the unity that is in your church. And God, we just pray and ask this morning that you would fill us with hope this morning. That we would see your faithfulness, see your power, see your work among your people. And Lord, that we would have hope to press in and enjoy unity with one another. God, I pray that you would do this in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So to see the great hope for unity amidst the diversity of the church, we're just going to break this passage into three parts. I do this. I I am the prototypical preacher. Everything is broken into three parts, but whatever. Three points and a poem, poem. yes. That's actually what we're going to do this morning. (laughs) I didn't write the poem, though. Uh, Martin Luther did, so it makes it okay. (laughs) So uh, three three things we're going to see in this passage. First, we're going to see God's plan. Second, we're going to see God's purposes. Third, we're going to see God's power. So God's plan, purposes, and power. Seeing these things, I believe, will give us hope so we can joyfully welcome one another and do what we were called to do last week. So first, God's plan in verses 8 and 9. We see God's plan. In verses 8 and 9, Paul wants to let the church know that God has decisively acted to make unity a reality through the work of Jesus. He wants the church to see... That, they, that this is not just a shot in the dark. That this is a hope that can be held on to because God has acted to make this a reality for his people. His plans have been put into action and he has acted on our behalf. The Roman church was a diverse church. It was a very diverse church. In verse 8, you could, in verses 8 and 9, you can see two distinct groups that are here in this church. You see the first, the circumcised, in verse 8. And in verse 9, you see the Gentiles. Now, to deal with the first makes me sad because I think of Andrew Self. He should be here. If any of you know, Andrew Self was our associate pastor. And he was the one who exclusively taught on circumcision throughout the... Every single time this word comes up in the text, when he was here, he'd preach it. I know. How lovely for him that when we think of circumcision, we think of him. So, uh, anyway. So I get stuck with it this morning. But we see Paul use this term to describe this group of people, the circumcised. And Paul, I believe, uses it here on purpose. He's got great intention with the use of this term. He hasn't referred to these people, this group, this way at this point. He is referring to them in this way for a strategic reason. It was a way of referring to the Jewish people in the church, the Jewish Christians. 
They had a culture and a religious tradition based upon Old Testament teaching to circumcise their young boys. And even though it's odd, it was a major part of their identity. It was a major part of their ethnic pride as Jewish people. Because this, this symbol of circumcision not only made them distinct from other nations, but it also was a testament to their faithfulness to God. Those who weren't circumcised were unclean, but they were worshipers of God. And it was built into their identity. This went to the core of who they saw themselves to be. It was a sign of their national identity. And so Paul uses this term because he wants to bring up, a po- he's putting his finger in a point of contention here. He's, he's putting his finger in a wound, something that would have worked to divide the church. And he calls them this, he calls them the circumcised. But then he also in verse 9 talks to the Gentiles. He says that there are Gentiles in the church. The Gentiles are the non-Jewish primarily Roman people in the church, people who are not circumcised. They did not share in the national identity and religious and ethnic pride of the Jews. And thus their lives looked very different. Their lives looked very different from the Jewish people, a very different culture. They not only did not get circumcised, they weren't concerned about eating the meat that was sacrificed to idols that Paul had just talked about in Romans 14. They were not sitting around like the Jews would do and debate genealogies because that was just outside of the culture and ethnic experience of the, of the Roman people. Moreover, they were probably dismissive of the Jewish identity, not being really moved by their fidelity to Old Testament laws. They, they, they had just a very different value system from the Jewish culture. And Paul has spent the last couple of chapters counseling these two groups on how to love one another, get along, and be unified amidst that diversity of ethnic and cultural experience. And he gets to the climax of his appeal to them in verse 7 by saying, welcome one another. And the question is, as we've already alluded to, is there really any hope for that to happen? You've got a people who to the core of their being believe that circumcision is part of their identity. And then you've got a group of people over here who claim to love Jesus and they're not and they don't care about it. How in the world are these two groups going to be able to come together? And when Paul, you've got to remember here, Paul is not just saying welcome one another in the sense that they should gather under the same piece of real estate, under the same building. He wants them to welcome one another in verse 7 as Christ has welcomed you. Deep, profound unity here. This is not just a casual social nicety. This is profound unity that Jesus describes in John 17 as being one with one another as Jesus and the Father are one with one another. That's the kind of unity that he has in mind here. He's not talking about just be nice, just put up with. He's talking about profound, intimate unity. How in the world is that possible? Now we could answer the question of how it might 
look to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us because Christ has welcomed us in so many different ways. But Paul has one particular vision, one particular thing in mind that he knows is particularly important to help these people realize this vision. And he says it in verse 8. Listen to how Christ welcomed the church in verse 8. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised and then also to the Gentiles. That Christ welcomed people by becoming a servant. This is so genius. It's so, it, it's so genius. How do you get Jews proud of who they are, thinking they're better and more spiritual than the Gentiles, to welcome the Gentiles? How do you get Gentiles who think the Jews are lower than them because they don't share in Roman citizenship the way that they do? How do you get black people who've suffered for the generations at the hands of white men and white men who have pride in their institutions and history to actually sit down and welcome one another? How, how, how do you do that? How do you get Democrats who find themselves morally superior to Republicans and Republicans who find themselves better than Democrats to actually welcome one another? Paul points the way here. Serve one another. Be lower than one another. By lowering yourself beneath others. This is what Jesus did. This is how Jesus unified us to himself. He became lower than us. Now consider this. Jesus is God. The creator of the universe. Truly God. Sharing the same essence of the Father. He's the eternal and sovereign Lord of the universe. And no mere creature is worthy to see him, let alone be near him. He's eternally and infinitely transcendent, high and exalted. And yet he, in his literal and real superiority over all of mankind, lowered himself to come and be born in a manger. Lowered himself to come and serve the sickest and the most socially despised among us. He took on the death of a sinner by being hung on a cross and being mocked by the Romans. And being given up to crucifixion by the Jews. And why did he do it? So that we could be forgiven and be unified to him. That is the way of Christ. Jesus served us by laying down his life for us. And we see here more specifically that he laid down his life and he served the Jews and the Gentiles. He laid his life down and served not only Jews and Gentiles, he laid his life down and served black people and white people, Republicans, Democrats, and all the other ways in which we fracture in our relationships. God's plan to unite the nations was not to stand above us and yell at us and threaten us. You better figure it out, people. But he came down to us and served us and united us through service. When he, when he got among his disciples and sat in the upper room to eat with them, he puts on a towel and gets down and he washes their feet and he does the job of a slave to his disciples. And not only that, he welcomes us 
by grace. This is so important that we're brought into this not because he, he doesn't do this because we've done anything to motivate him to do this for us. We've not done anything to impress him, to move him, to say, oh, I want to go down and serve those people because they're so great. He does it by grace. Despite the fact that we have sinned against him and offended him, he chooses to act in grace toward us. And because of this, this is so key to understand, because if you don't understand that, then what you will think now is, well, in order to make God happy with me, I need to go out and serve other people. And what Paul wants us to understand in verse 7 is, you're already welcomed. You're already welcomed, and so you welcome others out of being welcomed by Jesus. This is what Paul is calling to people to do, to not only receive that grace from Jesus, but to extend that grace to others, because you have experienced that grace as well. And Paul, says, Paul wants us to see this is the strategy. This is the means to realizing this vision, to get on our knees and serve one another. And we do this as a church. We, when I look around this church, I see this everywhere. We sign up for meal trains all the time. We labor in prayer for one another. When Theoden Waddell goes up to Josh Stanton's house and chops wood to clear trees, he enjoys it. He's weird. Right, Theoden? <laughs> when, you, when small group leaders, community group leaders, give up their homes to the tyranny of frontier children, <laughs> when you choose to give a soft response and an emotionally tense conversation on big subjects that we would disagree on, when we labor to assume the best of one another and treat our differences as occasions to serve rather than to indulge ourselves at one another's expense, this is stuff I see all over Frontier. And it, so this is, not a, this is not a get your act together, Frontier. I'm, we can celebrate as a church. We've got room to grow. We've got room to grow here. But I celebrate the fact that there are evidences of God's grace at work among us all over the place. The reality is, though, this is hard. This is really hard. Becoming a servant to people who are different from you is hard, and it's okay to admit that. And if you don't think it's hard, then you probably haven't done it. So Paul wants to press deeper. He doesn't just want to show us the pathway here, the work that God has done for us in Jesus to make this possible. He wants us to see Christ's service is couched in God's purposes for us. And so in verses 8 to 12, we see God's purposes come out through this passage. Because as noted, it, being in, united in a diverse group is hard work. It's not easy. When you bump into a hard conversation or you meet someone hard to get along with in the church, or just finding you disagree with somebody on something that's important to you, but isn't necessarily essential. You can get the same feeling I had when you look at that clump of worms. You can get that same sinking feeling when you look in the, that fruit drawer in the bottom of your fridge with that peach that's soft and leaking, and you think, there is no hope here. You get that no hope feeling, and it, and that makes you want to cut your losses rather than get down on your knees and serve. 
So Paul, again, he doesn't just want us to see how we are to do it. He wants to, us to see, to see the hope that there is. For, that, that there, if it would be possible to put that peach on the counter and it would just reconstitute itself, or those worms could go in the microwave, <laughs> or just be put on the counter and thaw out. He wants us to see there's real hope. What if I had a hope that that would happen? What if I had a reason to believe that those worms would have been good? I wouldn't go to the trash. It's a weird analogy. Yes, worms. But God is saying, don't throw the worms out. There's hope for Christian relationship. There's hope for Christian unity. He's made promises, and he delivers on his promises. He has worked and he is going to fulfill all that he has called us to and all that he has promised us to be. God wants us to see that the hope for Christianity or the hope for Christian unity lies in the fact that God fulfills promises and the, and the joy of all that the Bible promises in Christianity is actually really attainable. It's not just really attainable. It's a certain reality that we can enjoy and experience. And he knows that you need to be confident in God's promises or you will lose hope. And so he wants to fill you with hope. And how he does it is by showing us that God is a God who fulfills promises. He doesn't say, do this and I'll give you that, and then not fulfill it. He steps in and he fulfills his promises. That's what these verses are all about. He was faithful truthful to confirm in verse 8 the promises given to the patriarchs. I'm going to back up for just a second because I'm getting ahead of myself here. I want to point something out in the text. He says, I tell you in verse 8, Christ became a servant to the circumcised. And then we're going to stop there. He's showing us how to do this right at this point. And then he transitions and he gives us two purpose clauses. Two purposes clauses. These are, these are in order that statements. Statements that tell us what God is up to and why it is that we should imitate Jesus in this way. And here's the two reasons. To show God's truthfulness in order, this is why he's doing this, to confirm the promises. And in verse 9, in order... That the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. And then he quotes a bunch of Old Testament texts showing us that God is fulfilling promises. So first then, purpose one is that God fulfills promises to the Jewish people. Now if you've been here at Frontier for a while, this should feel really familiar. All the way back in chapter 9, Paul started talking about God fulfilling promises. The question in chapter 9 was, it looks like God has failed to fulfill his promises in verse 6. So has God failed? Because there's Jew, not, is not very many Jews in the church. We would think there'd be more Jews if Jesus, was, if, if Jesus was promised to save the Jews. So where are all the Jews at? And so the question is, is God really fulfilling promises? That's what Romans 9 through 11 is all about. Does God fulfill his promises? And so Paul here doesn't spend a lot of time because he's already spent three chapters talking about that. But he reminds them of what he's already told them. That God has fulfilled his promises by sending Jesus to be a servant to save and unite the Jewish people to himself in Jesus. He's fulfilled his promises. He's labored for his people. 
And the Jewish people can be reminded, oh, there's hope. God fulfills his promises. Look what he's done for us in Jesus. That's the point of this. To help them be rest assured that God is actually going to fulfill the promise for Christian unity, just as he fulfilled the promise for them in Jesus to forgive them of sin. And so he'll work to unite the church. And so they should have hope. But Paul is not done. He spends the bulk of his time here giving them the second purpose, and that is to, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. To fulfill promises for the Gentile people. And Paul here accomplishes in four verses for the Gentiles what he did in three chapters for the Jews. He shows them that God fulfilled promises for them. That God, when he makes a promise, he, you can bank on it. God, throughout the Old Testament, made promises to the Gentiles that they would be a part of the church, that they would be part of God's people, that he would draw them into his family, and that he would make them worshipers of God just like he did for the Jews. And this is throughout the Old Testament. And Paul wants them to see God's fulfilled promises for you too, so you can have hope. And Paul does it in the most ingenious way. He does it in the most genius way, just like he does the rest of this. He, he quotes from every major section of the Old Testament. Now, to you, that might not mean a lot. But to the Jews in this church, it meant everything. For the Gentile people, they're like, a quote from the Old Testament, great, God fulfilled a promise. For the Jews, they want to know that this is really what God's up to. And they broke the Old Testament up into the writings, the law, and the prophets. And what Paul is saying is, in all the writings, in all the law, and in all the prophets, God is saying, the Jews are going to be part of my family, and I'm going to turn them into worshipers, just like I did for you. He's a smart dude. And so that's what you have in verses 9 through 12. In, in 9 through 12. He quotes in, verses, uh, in verse, the ha- last half of verse 9, and in verse 11, the writings, saying, showing us that the Old Testament in the writings point to the Gentiles being brought into the family of God, that they are going to be made worshipers of God. In verse 10, we get a quotation from the law in the Old Testament. And then in verse 13, or verse 12, he shows them That in Isaiah, in the prophets, God is making this promise. So God, throughout redemptive history, in the law, the prophets, and the writings, throughout all of, of Jewish history, God has had an eye not just for the Jewish people, but for the whole world. And he wants to unite in Jesus, in one family, diverse people from every language, tribe, and tongue in the whole world. And they are supposed to come together in Jesus. And God is going to fulfill that. He's already fulfilled that promise in sending Jesus to bring them into the church. And he's going to fulfill that promise in full, in total, in perfection on the last day. And Paul wants them to be reminded, God fulfills promises. You can bank on this. You don't have to go to the trash. You don't have to go to the trash when, when, when things look tough in a relationship. There's hope. God's at work. He is, as Ephesians 1 tells us, I think it's up on the slide, Ephesians 1, in verse 10, that in Jesus, we, he is accomplishing forgiveness of sins for us. And what is he doing that for? To unite all things in Jesus. 
things in heaven and things on earth. He's uniting all people, all things, the trees, the plants, the rocks, the stars, the sun. It is all being united by God through Jesus in perfect unity. That is the vision that God has. And he has caught you up in it as a church. And because of that, you can have hope. Because he's not a God that fails to fulfill his promises. He fulfills them. You can bank on it. You don't need to go to the trash. You don't need to walk. You don't need to cut your losses. There's a bridge in eastern Iowa. I grew up in eastern Iowa. There's a bridge there. It's in a little town called Sabula. And it goes over to Illinois. It goes over the Mississippi. And if you've ever been to this bridge, you get pull up to it and you think, Ugh, I don't know if I want to cross this thing. It's rickety, it's old, it's metal, and it's, it looks like someone who didn't pass their journeyman tried to build it. And it's got, it's got like, it doesn't have pavement on it. It's like a grate where you can see through down to the water as you drive over. And when you drive over it, you can kind of feel it shift and move with you as you go. It feels like death is coming. but I drive on it. And why do I drive on it? I haven't driven on it a long time, so I can't vouch for it today. But why did I drive on it all those years, especially when I was doing home health for the, for the hospital? I drive over that thing because not only had I driven over it before and found it faithful and secure, thousands and hundreds of thousands have driven over it the same way. When you face hard realities... When there is a well-trodden, safe path, even though it looks rickety and scary, you'll walk it. You'll walk it. It's the reason why it's hard to get off the path in the woods. Christian relationships are hard. It's hard to be with people you disagree with, who share a different sense of ethnic or national identity, different values based upon the way we were raised and it's very easy very easy to inflate secondary matters that are not rooted in the gospel that are maybe tangential to it and make them really important more important than what they should be and throw relationships in the trash because of it because we lose hope we don't see how it can happen but God says don't Throw those worms in the trash. You could cross the bridge. The bridge is safe. God is going to do what he's promised to do. He's promised over and over. It's a well-trodden path that leads to joy. But last, God's power. God's power here in verse 13. Verse 13 concludes with a short prayer. He says there, may the God of hope fill you. He's praying. Paul concludes this with a short prayer, which is really weird, right? Because he's just telling these people what to do. They can have hope. Why is he now concluding with a prayer? Well, it's very simple. He knows that you and I can't just muster up hope and confidence in God's promises. Like, we can't, we can't do that. I can't. When I'm faced with a hard conversation, and I've had hard conversations in this church and other churches, when you sit across from somebody who feels really strongly about something and you feel really strongly, how do you, like, you can, I mean, we can say all this and we can have hope in God's, but how do we, like, 
hope in it so deeply that we can actually move forward and not walk. Paul knows (laughs) you can't do that on your own. (laughs) He knows, he knows that we are weak. He knows we're forgetful. He knows, he knows that we can't just sit here and try really hard to feel confident in God's promises and unite with people that are different with us on our own. Paul has given us answers to help us, but ultimately he knows that if it's up to us to figure this out, we're in trouble. And so he dives into prayer. He dives into prayer knowing that our hope to experience hope to a degree that we would be united with people is really going to be a work from God. And here's the good news. Paul prays for us and shows us that God is on our side to give us the hope that we need. God demands that we have hope in his promises so that we can pursue unity. Well, God has postured and positioned himself to give us what we need. Paul's strategy to help the church is to increase their hope, take on the servant of take on the heart of a servant by prayer, by dependence upon God to help us do this because we cannot do it on our own. And the question for us today is do you pray for one another to have faith in Jesus' purposes so deeply that you are moved to serve those who differ with you? Do you pray for that? Do you pray for your other brothers and sisters in Christ that they would do that? It'd be wise if you spent each day praying this prayer each week for yourself and for the church. We need God's help to do this. We need the Holy Spirit to help us experience this hope. I can stand up here and try to speak in a way that would make you excited in this moment, but you're going to go have lunch and you're going to forget about it. What are you going to do on a Tuesday when you see somebody's social media post with something that upsets you? How are you going to respond? How how are you going to have hope in that moment? Well, the Holy Spirit is the only God through the work of the Holy Spirit is our only hope to be able to have that kind of hope. God doesn't sit in heaven. We need to know this. He does not sit in heaven wagging his finger at you, telling you that it, to figure it out or else. He's already welcomed you as a Christian. If you're a believer here this morning, he has welcomed you. And you're his child. And he stands in heaven ready to come to you and fill you with the hope he calls you to possess. St. Augustine said it, and I quote it as much as I can because it's the best quote ever. He prays a prayer and he says, God, command what you will, but grant what you command. We need God to give us what he demands from us here. He demands us to be unified, and he has postured himself to give us that unity. He stands in heaven ready to fill you with the faith he calls you to exercise. Look there. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing in believing. He, w- he wants to give you a heart of faith and belief that he's going to fulfill his promises. He stands in he- heaven ready to overfill you with the joy he demands you express. That he may fill you with all joy. He stands in heaven ready to give you the peace that will allow you to endure those hard conversations and hard relationships without feeling anxiety and a sense of dread and hopelessness. He's going to give you peace and he's going to give you hope. He's ready to empower you with hope to serve those who are different from you. He has already shown himself to love us by serving us in Jesus. 
And so you can go to him knowing he is ready and postured to give you the hope you need to get on your knees and serve one another. Martin Luther, the poem. He wrote a hymn called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Listen to how he describes this. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath is his name. We can rest in him. From age to age the same. And he, he must win the battle. This is what God calls us to. To rest in Jesus knowing the hope we have in him so we can get on our knees, make ourselves vulnerable to people we're different from, and be unified with them. Come on, here we go. I'm too wide to do that, so it's got to move.